Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 19. Chapter 19. One meal a week. One meal a week will serve you, and one suit, through all your travels. A quote from John Fletcher. The mud into which we dropped content's anchor, we thought to ourselves was American soil at last. This was the USA. But all the Key Westerlies hastened to assure us that this was not the USA at all. It appeared that Key West was inhabited by a tribe who spoke of going abroad when they visited the mainland, and who depended for their income on shrimps, tourists from abroad, and on sundry semi-illicit gambling activities. It also appeared that the big white chief of the foreigners came here periodically from his big white house to escape from the rigours of civilization. However, USA or not, Key West Harbour, crowded with naval craft and shrimping boats, was a peaceful resting place after the boisterous end to our passage in which we had collected specimens of seaweed in the lower rigging. As I lay on the deck in my sleeping bag, I watched pencils of light flickering over the glossy black water. I could hear a drama being broadcast over the radio of a nearby warship and caught the intimate sighs of the heroine as they were blurted out across the harbour to be scattered among the silent quays beyond. We were interviewed by the immigration authorities the next morning. It appeared that we did not have one of the more important forms. We apologised and explained that we had not known about it as we had never had to use it before. The young immigration officer looked scornfully at us. Do you mean to tell me that you knew nothing of form number so-and-so? He said in a voice which clearly implied that to not know about it was one of the signs of a misspent youth. We said that we did not. The young man was furious and treated us as though we were something that had been left on the beach by an unusually high tide. But fortunately, his older companion was better acquainted with the relative values of life, and with him we came to a reasonable agreement. We could stay only two days in Key West, and from there had an easy two-day passage round the Cays to Miami. With a moderate breeze and the Gulf Stream beneath us, we made good progress to windward, periodically passing through areas of broken water where the stream surged over a bank far below us. Ships passed frequently during the day, and at night we saw their lights ghosting by. It was not until we could see the glow of Miami's lights in the distance that the weather deteriorated. Sullen, black clouds swung above the horizon to windward. As the squall approached, we lowered the staysail. A few drops of rain pattered onto the mainsail, and lightning trembled through the dusk. Swizzle took up his bad weather station, and the helmsman rigged his canvas dodger. Then the wind came, and Content's lee rail sagged into the water as she ploughed towards Miami. For half an hour we laboured uncertainly through the dark while the watch below lay listening for a shout, which would mean the sail had to be shortened. Then a star peeped shyly out and withdrew again. A few minutes later another appeared, and then the squall was passed and the first neon lights of the city glared at us from ahead. We would have been in Miami that night had it not been for the perversity of our chart. It took advantage of the conditions during our approach to creep across the deck and plunge over the side. Without a chart, we could not pick out the lights of the channel boys from those on the shore beyond, and rather than risk steering for the lobby of one of the hotels by mistake, we resigned ourselves to the unpleasant business of lying off till dawn. As soon as daylight showed us the way, we hurried in 
and anchored in Biscayne Bay, opposite the City Yacht Basin. An Englishman once said to us, you must live in America for five years before you can form a true impression. It was as well that we bore this in mind, for there can scarcely be a worse place than Miami in which to gather one's first impressions of American life. It's like trying to judge a person from his caricature. It was a glittering, soulless playpen which focused the attention on materialism, disregard of integrity and naive egocentricity. But though Miami is no more representative of America than Blackpool is of England, it was something we had to see. From the West Indies, we were entering another world. It was as though we had come from a darkened garden and were looking back at it from the centre of an immense crystal chandelier. While we were seeing Miami, Miami was apparently seeing something of us. Much to our surprise, newspaper representatives clambered aboard and later we paraded in our best and only suits before the television cameras. What particularly amused us was that the sightseeing boats which took tourists round the bay picked us out as one of the local oddities. We could hear the guides telling increasingly lurid tales over the microphones and giving the impression that the actual crossing of the Atlantic itself had taken more than two years. At the psychological moment, we would sometimes pop our heads through the hatches and give a formal little bow to the passengers. After all, they had paid their dollar fifties. We enjoyed Miami. We always derived a thrill from being in the midst of such wealth when our total capital could not have bought a meal at one of the fashionable restaurants. But perhaps our turn would come. That is the charm of the vagabonding life. It is a succession of crests and troughs, and you never know which will come next. In deciding to come to the States, we realised that we were facing the possibility of a period of frugal living, for we were not allowed to work without an immigrant visa. We'd arrived at Key West with a total of five American dollars, but knew that in New York there awaited us some money due for an article and photographs already sold. We had a reasonable supply, though not much variety, of staple foods aboard, and if necessary could sail non-stop to New York. So we averted our eyes when we passed the food stores and concentrated on low living and high thinking. Our capital was increased by a few dollars from a British newspaper before we left, so we determined to sail up the inland waterways above Charleston and see a little of the country up the east coast. After ten days in which we met several English and Scottish people, we weighed anchor and motored out of the cut between the breakwaters. A strong current was running out, the breeze blew straight in, the result was a turmoil of broken water. For the first time we saw Content plunging her bow right through the steep short seas and as the bow rose it sent a torrent cascading aft along the deck to the cockpit combing. Once outside, however, the sea was fairly calm and we sailed up the coast past Miami Beach where the fabulous hotel stood like a line of grotesque wedding cakes to Fort Lauderdale which we reached before dark. Here we were introduced to something of which there is no equivalent in Britain, the Yacht Marina. The yachtsman in Britain is regarded as a member of a curious but relatively harmless tribe whose fundamental dogma is, thou shalt be uncomfortable, and which is too small in numbers to gain recognition as a potential market. In America, the accent is more on powerboats, very often regarded as an automobile that happens to float, in which one wears fewer clothes and from which one can fish. The American yachtsman is numerically strong enough to command a special marketplace and special facilities. 
Bahia Mar at Fort Lauderdale was a superb example of the marina, and the management was good enough to allow us to lie there free of charge. Though out of season, there were a sufficient number of sumptuous yachts there to keep us happily browsing and to shame us into doing some painting on content. We were still concerned about the approaching hurricane season, and after a few days, left the friends we had made in Miami and Fort Lauderdale and took a larger bite at the mileage that remained ahead of us by aiming for Charleston, where we would join the waterways. Our first day at sea was mercifully calm, for it was my day in the galley and for most of the way we had a perfect, lazy passage. The current gave us about 60 miles a day, which compensated for the light winds. Sometimes we were almost becalmed and the helmsman rigged an awning and read a book, but there was always that 60 miles in the bank every day. But our repose was shattered one night by an electric storm which burst upon us. Thunder crackled just above the masthead and lightning flashed mercilessly. One moment the deck with its white-topped bulwark, the blue engine room hatch, the white capping on the cockpit combing, all stood out in glaring detail. The next, everything was plunged into blackness, which almost numbed the brain. The searing flash again, the hideous crackle of thunder over one's shoulder, till the helmsman's eyes ached with the effort of adjustment. The wind rose a little, and the rain streaked down from driven clouds. The glimmer of St. Elmo's fire grew at the masthead, till we saw the burgee fluttering in its own weird light. I was in the rigging, helping a recalcitrant topsail on its way to the deck, when I heard Don give a shout and saw him pointing over the port quarter. Clutching the ratlines, I turned my head. A black finger, darker than the surrounding night, reached down to the sea from the low clouds. It was a water spout. As I watched, lightning flashed again and the column showed a pale grey with a flurry round its foot. It was moving rapidly across our stern a few hundred yards away. Then I glanced to windward and gripped the ratlins more tightly. Another flurry loomed up in a lightning flash directly upwind of us. For a moment, I gazed into the darkness. Then another flicker of light and this time there was nothing. I must have caught sight of the premature birth or the death of another spout. Within a few hours, the storm had passed and next morning we found that the wind had headed us. Charleston now lay upwind, whereas Savannah was on our beam, so why not visit Savannah? We bore away, picked up the light ship, and sailed up the river and tied up at the little town of Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt was chiefly notable for our introduction to water skiing behind a speedboat in which three American lads were cruising through the waterways. Ernest achieved most success at this and even affected some thrilling, though at times involuntary, acrobatics. Don and I suffered because the skis were designed for feet of considerably greater overall length than ours. The result was that, though one's foot might remain pointing ahead, the ski branched out on its own at the crucial moment with devastating results. When we set out from Thunderbolt a few days later, we had managed to sell an article for a few dollars and now embarked on our waterway trip. True, it would take longer to travel up the waterway than up the coast, but we had become hardened to our corned beef diet and the thought of rippling along in smooth water was very attractive. Content is scarcely an ideal craft for inland sailing. Her draft of seven and a half feet left little to spare between her keel and the continent of America in some stretches and her straight keel and heavy displacement made her slow in going about. In addition, financial considerations impelled us to conserve fuel by sailing whenever we could and sometimes when we could not. As a result, 
we learned more about laying out catches during the next three weeks than we had during the previous three years. Whenever there was a breeze of any sort, day or night, we set sail and often tried to tack up narrow channels where there was scarcely time to fill off on one tack before rounding onto the other. The inevitable result was that we usually grounded several times a day. At the first tremor, the dinghy was brought alongside, an anchor was lowered into it, and the little outboard motor started if necessary. Within a few minutes, we were usually on our way again, and this became so much a part of the daily routine that we carried an anchor permanently slung over the bow and the stern. When all was going well, we reveled in the sensation of sailing between fields, and when progress was impossible at night, we chose some snug little creek and lay there till dawn. These waters reminded us very much of the Norfolk Broads in England, except that they were on a much larger scale. They had the same flat countryside with the forlorn beauty of expanses of marshland punctuated by clumps of trees. Charleston was our first major halt and we spent several days there. It was a very charming old city, in places very beautiful, and the people we met were most kind to us. But in Charleston there seemed to be some of the atmosphere one finds in a museum, as though the present were an unavoidable evil which had to follow the past, and ancestors were of more importance than progeny. Perhaps it was out of consideration for us Englishmen, but any ancestors of English or Scottish origin were brought out of the family cupboards and dusted off. We began to have a new respect for the gallant little Mayflower, for she clearly made not a single crossing of the Atlantic, but had run a shuttle service between Britain and America, loaded to the gunnels with the cream of English society, for export only. One of our friends in Charleston presented us with a DDT bomb, and the day after we left was the occasion of a signal victory on board. For two years we had been fighting cockroaches, and since I often used to sit up at night raining haphazard blows at the typewriter, I found myself in the van of the fight, which began to assume a personal flavour. About midnight, it was customary for our cockroach population to rouse themselves and think about going somewhere to eat, and from the cracks and crannies of the galley, they came sauntering out to see what was for supper. It was intolerable. I waged merciless war on them. I banged and slashed with shoes and folded newspapers. I sprayed them with DDT solution, and I laid down supposedly toxic pills on which they appeared to wax fat. I made traps out of jam jars with decayed jam in the bottom, quite effective this, and carried out research to discover whether they preferred cheese or jam or bread as food. Unfortunately, taste differed. After a few months, I was myself acquiring cockroach traits, for at long range I could immediately tell the females from the males and made special efforts to destroy them. Not only would this decrease cockroach production, but it would make life on board very uninteresting for the surviving males. I had even witnessed the birth of the young cockroaches from the egg sacs, and after a year could discern the early stages of pregnancy and could hazard a guess at the identity of the father. But we still had cockroaches. Now, however, we tried the bomb. We thoroughly sprayed the interior, fled to the deck and closed every opening. The result, as I've said, was a victory for us. The attack wiped out the greater part of their force, and as we were leaving tropical climates, they never recovered from the blow. It was while we were still celebrating our deliverance from the cockroaches that we fell among mosquitoes. Throughout our trip, we had never had to use nets, but now we suffered our first onslaught. We had gone aground, and a falling tide had compelled us to remain there for several hours. As the sun dipped into the marshes, 
we heard the whine of the attacking forces and within 10 minutes were driven below decks. Not realizing that we would find mosquitoes in the States, we had not equipped content with screens, and though everything was battened down, the mosquitoes had no difficulty in following us. First one, and then another tiptoed below and then zoomed into the attack until we were fighting for our lives with voracious monsters the size of seagulls. Sooner or later, I had to go on deck to see whether the tide had risen, so summoning up my courage, I rushed through the hatch and slammed it behind me. The night was clear and cool and moonlit. Not a mosquito was in sight. I looked through the skylight into the lighted saloon. Don and Ernest, their backs to the bulkhead, were struggling valiantly but forlornly with the mosquitoes trapped below with them. In this waterway passage, we were forced to throw ourselves on the mercy of the old grey mare, for we were often dependent on her. Ever since her decarbonisation in St Lucia, she had been leading a gay and abandoned life, drinking vast quantities of oil, for she was still without new piston rings. We had had some difficulty in keeping pace with her thirst, and one day, after an unusually long run, she seized up. We anchored near the New River Inlet and settled down to a day of struggles. We loosened the cylinder block, supported it with a rope tackle and waggled it to and fro. We put a piece of wood into the cylinder and hammered the exposed end. We put our shoulders to the flywheel and bars and levers to every point of vantage. And at last, we managed to move the enormous bucket-like pistons and work them free. We found that Swizzle, who had been granted shore leave on a neighbouring island, had swum to the mainland in search of adventure. Finally, however, the engine was reassembled and Swizzle rounded up and we set out for Moorhead City. At the end of August, we arrived there intending to stay one day. We remained a month. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.